training every day with intention and gusto would get me where I wanted to be very quickly. And the harder that I trained, the faster I would get there. And I didn't realize that all of that was a complete and utter misconception. It actually turns out that the easier and the slower I trained, yes, the more I did it, but the slower you train in the beginning, the building up that aerobic base and the, the base of your body to handle higher volumes and higher intensities was the secret. Welcome to the All In Podcast, where we dive into the mindset, habits, and stories behind inspiring and passionate individuals who know what it takes to go all in. In All In, you can expect real and raw conversations with athletes, coaches, and leaders on topics like mental health, mindset, psychology, training, wellness, habits, and much more. We hope to leave you feeling empowered with motivational stories, relatable experiences, and actionable advice. And I know that I personally walk away from each episode learning something new. And this episode is no different. In this episode, we are joined by professional paddleboarder, April Zilk. In this episode, April talks about being patient in your pursuit of success and not expecting overnight results, how to build a strong aerobic foundation, including her experience with aerobic deficiency syndrome, and the importance of journaling. So without further ado, let's go all in. April, welcome to the All In Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Where are you joining us from? Dude, I am joining you from North Carolina, actually up closer to the Virginia border, but um, not long uh, will I be here. I'm headed out to California tomorrow for the USA SUP team tryouts. So oh, I'm glad we cool. were able to connect. Yeah, right before that, I'm, I'm definitely going to ask you about that. I've spent a little bit of time in North Carolina in the Asheville area. Is that anywhere remotely close to where you are? I'm about halfway across the state. So I'm okay. equal distances from Asheville in the mountains and also the coast. So I'm, yeah, smack dab in the middle up closer to the Virginia border. That's very cool. I definitely, I mean, I, I know that North Carolina and just the whole coastal line is known for, yeah, water sports and um, people getting out to the beach. And unfortunately, yeah, I haven't made my way out to the, to the water. So I definitely got to go check it out. Yeah. North Carolina beaches are some of the most absolutely beautiful beaches um, just I think in the entire world. And I've seen a lot of beaches. So anytime I can get down to the coast is a good day. I do a lot of training down there. Um, I spend a lot of time at the blockade runner in Wrightsville beach because they have sound side and ocean side access. So from your room, you can pretty much see both sides. Like you can check the surf. So you don't even have to get up um, and, and, you know, go outside to look, you just open your window and you're like, yeah, it's worth paddling today. Or yeah, it's worth surfing today. That's amazing. Cause it's always like such a struggle, especially like I come from the snowboard world. So you make that whole drive to the mountains and all of a sudden, like, let's say you're like, okay, the conditions seem good. And there's a whole patch of like fog and cloud on the mountain. And you can't see, you know, your hand in front of you. And it's so hard to know that without just looking out there. So it seems like it's like the perfect spot. Oh yeah. It's such a great location for training. Um, that's where they, they host the Carolina cup, which is one of the largest races on the East coast that we just finished up back in April. Um, and yeah, so we, we circumnavigate Wrightsville beach and start and finish at that same kind of hotel resort. And it's just, yeah, it's a great spot to be, to train, to race, to do everything. 
I love that. Well, I'm super excited to dive more into, yeah, what you do with your racing and everything. My, my dad, actually, he uh, has made some stand-up paddle boards. So he's like gotten the wooden and made it all out of wood. So we have a, a couple very, very heavy um, stand-up paddle boards at our cottage and we're, we're definitely right into it. It's such an amazing and I think accessible um, sport. It's really taken over up here, but you mentioned that you spend tons of time at the beach and I know that you got your, you were doing your master's of science in deep sea coral uh, reef ecology while you first discovered paddling and I read that you were doing seahorse breeding so I actually wanted to kick things off with asking you what what is that is it exactly what it sounds like it is exactly what it sounds like I mean the joke in my 20s was uh my job title was sexpert if that's <laughs> a thing I was like yeah I'm a sexpert um but yeah I worked at the North Carolina Aquarium at Fort Fisher as just not just a seahorse breeder. I had a probably five or six exhibits that I was co, um, not in charge of, but like co, uh, technician aquarist of, and one of them was the seahorse exhibit. And so we, I kind of like had the tank where I'd bring the males and the females and they mate for life. So they form a a mating pair, they bond. And when you get there every morning, you turn on the lights and they see each other and they actually dance together to re-solidify that bond every morning. So the males and the female, they, they wake up, they find their partner, they like join tails, they swim around the, the male, if he doesn't have any babies at the time, he just kind of like opens his pouch really um seductively may I add and <laughs> kind of shows the lady like hey um look how big my pouch is don't you want to put some <laughs> eggs in here because the females deposit the eggs in the male and he is the one who gets big and giant and pregnant for very you know cool. many many days and then by the end of the pregnancy he's very heavy and very large and kind of swimming around on the bottom of the tank, um, not very mobile until, you know, and around that time I would move them into the birthing tanks and the males would, uh, give birth. And when that was done, I'd move them back into the mating tanks with their, their lady friend. That is really cool. I always say like, we learn something new on every episode and this is definitely something that I feel like a lot of people wouldn't have known. I had no idea that the male seahorses carried the eggs. So that, that's amazing. I know. I keep trying to splice my husband with seahorse DNA, but it's just not working. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, well, actually that, that kind of brings up a deeper, uh, I guess, conversation, but I talk about that all the time as a female athlete that, you know, I, I see, I can, in, in my sports, like a lot of male athletes and you see that they have like, let's say four kids, a large family. And, uh, they get asked by the interviewer and they're like, how did you do this? Like, how are you still competing? And they're like, well, my wife is helping with everything. Like she's taking care of the kids. She's getting my food ready, you know, helping me be able to train all the time. And as a female athlete, you, you do have that little bit of time stamp in your head. If you do want to have children mm-hmm. of, you know, that is not going to be, you know, a competition year for me. There's going to be a lot of, you know, things I have to do to stay fit during the pregnancy. Perhaps if I do want to come back after the pregnancy, back to sport, you know, there's a lot of things that female athletes have to deal with mentally around that side of things. And physically, of course, um, that male athletes don't, they can just say, yeah, I'm going to have a kid and compete the next day. Right. Literally. (laughs) 
yeah, I, like I said, if I could splice him with seahorse DNA, I would be all over that. Um, cause we have yet to uh, start a family for that very reason. Cause I mean, it's taken me because I didn't start out with any athletic background at all. I, I didn't know how far I was going to take my career. Um, when I started like 11 years ago. So I, I didn't know that I, I was going to get to this age where I thought I'd be having kids and go, Oh wait, I just now made it. Like I'm just now here. I thought maybe I'd get here in four to six years. Oh no, I wasn't even scratching the surface. I wasn't even close. Um, and now, you know, at year 10, 11, I'm starting to see some performances like that are indicative of, you know, like that glacier meme, like the graphic, like, Oh yeah, that, that 10, 11 years of work. And like, well, I don't want to stop when I just got started, but as I'm entering the ages that they automatically label you as a geriatric pregnancy, (laughs) um, I'm like, Oh, that feels great because I don't feel old at all. I feel, I feel like I'm in my twenties because I'm in better shape now in my mid thirties than I was in my mid twenties and even my late twenties and even my early thirties, I've gotten fitter and healthier every year. So that can't possibly be bad for procreation, if you ask me. Um, and then I also have just a lot of role models and friends in the athletic community that chose to have children later um, in their late 30s and early 40s, and they're fine. Um, you know, like everything worked out perfectly, and their children now are headed off to college, and they're in their 60s, and 60s for them is an old. Right. You know, whereas where I grew up, um, I grew up kind of in a much like lower income and lower class area where you pretty much had kids in high school or right out of high school. And by the time they are graduated and you're like, they are doing the same and you're a grandparent at age 40, you know, like you're already a grandparent and then life is over um, at like 50, 60, like that's it. Like that's the lifespan. And I, my goal is to live to be 120 and be paddling for every moment of it. So yeah, like I think delaying uh, family is, is a good decision or at least it's my decision. Um, I don't have any qualms about it, but it is like the, the peer pressure um, people saying, Oh, you're going to run out of time or, Oh, you know, like it's going to dry up and become dust or something. No, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. That pressure is something that a lot of female athletes definitely have to have to deal with, you know, societal pressure, um, the pressure to maybe decide, yeah, exactly. To forego having children altogether or to, to have children later on. And uh, something that a lot of male athletes can't necessarily understand. Um, and it definitely, as much as I, I like to say and talk about on the podcast with mindset and things like that of, you know, not thinking like you're always in a rush, you know, be patient. There is that, that in the back of your mind for a female athlete who does want to start a family that, you know, there's, there's timing, right. And there's, you know, having a schedule around that, if that's of your interest. So. Well, I think it's a, it's the right combination. Like everything I do is the right combination of patience and hustle. So I am going to be patient if an opportunity arises and like a window opens, I could hustle uh, and and get it done. Um, (laughs) But I'm not rushing when I'm going to do it. And yes, I am looking at certain upcoming competitions to 
to make that choice, whether it's sooner or later. But I think that I, I also have a really supportive technique coach for outrigger and stand up paddling who seems to think that after, um, after having a child, your, your paddle performance, like your endurance and your strength and your technique actually improves. So oh, it gets better. So, um, yeah, my coach thinks I'll be better afterwards. So that's ah, cool. Well, there you go. Uh, we had a, a two-time Paralympic champion on the podcast and she said like it was her mom's strength. That was like what helped her win Paralympic gold medals. I was like, all right, like that's that's a performance enhancer right there. Yeah, I yeah, I don't think it's a big deal it, like in that regards. Timing it to know that you're going to miss certain competitions or miss certain races or have like some time off or some time where, you know, as you come back, your results in races aren't what you once thought they or, or they're not what they once were. But as long as like you don't have an ego problem, you know, and you're just going out and you're having fun and you're supporting your sport and you're building your fitness back up, there's there's no reason that you can't get out there and enjoy your activity. Right. Right. Well, so you, you mentioned that it's taken you a lot longer than, than you thought to get to kind of, you know, the, where you are now and where you are now in the sport. And I think that's a very similar scenario for many people. They get into the sport, they're like, let's go. I'm going to be, you know, I'm really gung ho about it. If I train every day, oh my God, I can make it to this level like in two years. And then all of a sudden they're humbled by the fact that it's actually going to take a long time. So what was your experience like with, one, learning to do that, learning to, you know, hustle while you wait. So be patient, but also be able to hustle and take advantage of opportunities. As well as I read that you weren't necessarily, you know, a pro right away. It took you a while. You didn't have that early success. Whereas you see a lot of athletes, they find a sport, they realize they're natural at it. And that's why they navigate towards it. So what got you to keep continuing with, with the path that you're on, despite not necessarily having that early success? Well, first I'd like to address the early successes you see in other people. And one of my favorite books um, was Peak by Anders Ericsson. And he he kind of debunks that myth of these, these natural born athletes or these, these naturals where, yeah, they might be a natural or it might in, seem like they're natural coming into a sport, say like stand-up paddling. I've seen a lot of people just show up and be in like the top five. But what happened is they came from another sport that crossed over really well. So they mm. usually have a ton of accumulated volume at, and ability of like, not like their body's ability to adapt and learn quickly, because that's one of the characteristics of an athlete that defines being an athlete is your adaptability and your ability to like shift gears and be like, oh, you know, my brain and body connection is strong. Here's the movement. I've learned it. You've learned it quickly. And now you go out and uh, you can utilize it. So if they've come from a, a long background of like triathlon or some other paddle or water sport, their brain is really already adept at communicating with their muscle fibers, activating um, the reaction times are fast and the ability of the brain to learn is is just faster and enhanced in athletes. And we know that too, because of oxygenation, like of the brain tissues and all of that. So athletes usually do, um, when they train properly are, are faster thinkers, faster reaction times. Um, I didn't have any base and I didn't come from any sport. So I had none of that. And I did, I, but I was under the false impression that 
naturals were a thing and that like training every day with intention and gusto would get me where I wanted to be very quickly. And the harder that I trained, the faster I would get there. And I didn't realize that all of that was a complete and utter misconception. Um, it actually turns out that the easier and the slower I trained, yes, the more I did it, but the slower you train in the beginning, the building up your, that base, that aerobic base and the, the base of your body to handle higher volumes and higher intensities was the secret. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a lot of failure along the way with overtraining syndrome, aerobic deficiency syndrome. I used to, you know, look like the bionic woman with all the KT tape on my body before I realized that, you know, strength training wasn't about getting strong. It was about balancing out the body and injury prevention, uh, as well as teaching my neurons how to recruit more muscle fibers. It, it's not about going to the gym and lifting weights like, so that I'm strong. It's for other reasons to support the, the main goal. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a, a long road of, like I said, a ton of failure and just being able to kind of get back up, um, every time failure happened and say, okay, maybe this next thing is the thing that's going to make the big difference. Um, uh, it never was, but it, in the end, 10 years later, it was the synergy of all the things. Like I'd change one thing each year. And finally, you know, like I said, the iceberg analogy, it, finally, it was all there. Um, I love that. Yeah. Like all those little added pieces and, and they're finally, it's like your work is finally coming to light and you're getting to where you, you want to be. And, um, I also love that you mentioned about the natural athlete concept. I have actually a friend who started doing some races in stand-up paddleboarding and he, uh, he's actually my training partner. He's a CrossFit games athlete. He is, uh, he grew up being a national level paddler, uh, of canoe. So it's the perfect synergy, right. To get onto a stand-up paddleboard and then yeah. have success in the sport. And he talks a lot as well of what you said about, you know, the strength training to equal out some of those imbalances. Like he was talking actually just this morning to, with me about how he would be, uh, he would go to sleep and couldn't get out of a grip because of how mm. hard he was with canoeing, just always being in that position. Wow. And so his hands were just permanently like gripped closed. And then you're, you're really with the canoe. You're always only on one side of your body. Mm. So you're not building the other side. And so there was so much work that he had to do as then he transitioned into the sport of CrossFit of like equal that out so that his strength wasn't, you know, causing him injuries because one shoulder or one side is a little bit stronger and one's a little bit weaker in comparison. Yeah, that's huge. Um, but strength balance is definitely one of the biggest things for anybody getting into sport for the first time or anyone changing sports. Um, like when you have that kind of transition phase or that downtime or that adaptation, that early anatomical adaptation phase where you're preparing yourself to do your new sport. Yeah. Like addressing strength and imbalance issues followed by building up that really big aerobic system. So we can handle a higher load of high intensity training with a bigger aerobic system because the aerobic slow twitch oxidative fibers suck up the byproducts of anaerobic metabolism, like little vacuum cleaners and, and just 
do away with it, utilize it as fuel, shuttle it elsewhere in the body. And if we never take the time, it's so funny, like if you flip through any headlines, you know, or, you know, like all the Facebook ads, all the Instagram ads, everything's about burning more calories in yeah. your workout and high intensity and, and, and also how to eat fewer calories. Everything geared towards women is eat less workout at a higher burn. Like mm -hmm. we are so deep in a deficit. It's not even funny. Um, but that's like a whole different tangent, but we should really be building that low intensity, slow, easy aerobic base in a parasympathetic mindset, like state where our, our, we're kind of like in rest and digest mode because that's where the magic happens. If we're constantly training from uh, like a fight or flight, like, oh, I'm, I'm running short on time. I have to rush through this workout. Oh, I'm, uh, I want to look hot in this bikini and I only have a month to do it. I'm going to work out super hard. Oh, I don't want to take 11 years to be a good paddler. I want it to happen in two to three. So I'm going to work out really hard. That's all coming from a place of lack. It's all coming from a, like that fear, fear of failure. Um, like I said, it's a, it's a sympathetic fight or flight response. And when we train in a sympathetic state, like a sympathetic upregulated state, every calorie that we eat is going to burn like as energy to evade what our brains have identified as a threat. Like we're constantly living in a state of threat. Like, oh, I got to catch up to the person in front of me. Oh, I don't want to lose this workout of the day, even in a gym, right? Like, oh, she's mm -hmm. in front of me. Oh, I'm behind. That's a big one. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's just constant, constant fighting and fleeing. So all our calories are going into fighting and fleeing. Whereas if we, we dial it back and we train in a, a parasympathetic state that rest and digest, then our calories actually go into our building new body parts. It builds new capillaries to fuel your muscles with oxygen and those calories and get rid of the waste and shuttle them away. And then once you're getting all that cool fuel and oxygen to your muscles in again, that nice rest and digest, chill aerobic zone state, once you do that, you increase your mitochondrial density so that it can handle the fact that more fuel is getting to your muscles. So you increase the little powerhouses of the cell and you generate even more ATP, which means you can do more work at the same heart rate, which means you're going to go faster. You're going to lift heavier. You're going to go harder. Everything's going to improve by training slow, like boring and easy. And it's so counterintuitive, but that was definitely like the thing out of the last 11 years that made the difference for me. I absolutely love that you brought that up because I actually have it noted down as something I want to ask you about because when I read that that was something that you went through, I was really relating to it because I grew up playing hockey, which is a sprint recover sport. Mm -hmm. Then I was a national level snowboarder. Again, you know, you're, you're in a squat, you're jumping through the air, high adrenaline, and then you sit on a chairlift, rest, recover. Nothing is a long aerobic base, right? And so mm -hmm. I jumped into CrossFit and people thought I took to it naturally. Again, it was that I was an athlete my whole life and all these various sports. So I had, you know, I had some of the strength and conditioning. I had the muscle coordination, things to pick up some of the movements easily. And so it was like, you know, people, oh, you're going to go to the games in two years, all these things, right? So all of a sudden it's high intensity, high intensity, high intensity. And you hit a wall eventually. And I was experiencing burnout. I was tired. I was, you know, brain fog, everything. I was starting to get injuries. 
And I was communicating with these coaches that I had at the time. And they're like, no, you just need to do more high intensity, more of the classes. And I was like, no. And so, you know, I hired amazing coaches um, and they were like low and slow, right? Like, just like how you said, probably four or five years ago and, you know, low and slow, start building the base. It's going to take longer than you think, right? Like let's take, you know, a year or two taking a step back to build Mm -hmm. this foundation in this space. And that's something I've really been working on throughout the the past really like four years is like, yeah, like, like some low and slow running some, you know, building up all that foundation. But unfortunately, like you said, you know, people go into class, let's say they're not even competing. They go into a CrossFit class or something. They want to beat that person beside them every single day. And they're just pushing every day. And it's hard to tell people like, not every day is a competition. Like not, no athlete competes every single day on that level. Even baseball players who have a season that's insane schedule, they're still, baseball isn't as high intensity. So they're able to do that. So no one is competing day in, day out. And so I would love to know more about your personal experience and when, you know, what exactly were you doing with your training of that high intensity? And then how did you flip it? And what are you doing now? Um, Well, I was always training what I thought was a pretty low heart rate, but I bought one of those lactate plus meters that you, so yeah, you like, I pricked my ear because I'm using my hands on the paddle, but it, I draw blood. It's like a blood glucose meter to, for diabetics, but it just tests blood lactate and around two, 2.5 millimoles per liter of lactate. That is where like science has accepted is the aerobic threshold. So we're obviously always burning both aerobic and anaerobic fuels. So we're always burning fat and glycogen, like a blend of the two. But at that threshold, we're burning a much higher percentage of fat and utilizing oxygen. So as we increase the intensity, we start using glycogen, uh, you know, stored glucose, blood glucose as the primary fuel type. And so as humans, we can be endomorphs, which are, you know, endomorphs are kind of like the, the thick stocky bones, like big muscles or heavy set people. And endomorphs are primarily fast twitch muscle fiber athletes. So they're good at sprinting. They're good at high intensity bursts. They're not really good at the all day long and slow stuff. Then you have those ectomorphs, which are your, your marathon runners. They're just long and lean and thin. And, you know, they struggle to put on weight. Whereas the endomorph, you look at a donut and you gain weight, or you look at a weight and you gain muscle, the ectomorphs struggle to put it on, but they can do the motion that they do all day. Like they never seem to run out of energy because they have predominantly slow oxidative muscle fibers that are taking in oxygen and burning um, stored fat, even though that, you know, they're not fat, but our bodies have enough stored fat for them to utilize that as fuel on any given day. And then you have like your mesomorphs, which are a blend of like fast and slow uh, muscle fiber types. You could be one on the top and another on the bottom, like ecto endo would be like a pear shape and an endo up top and ecto down bottom would be um, the apple shape. Or you could be like really lucky with the genetic lottery and be a blend all over and just be like supermodel shaped, which that would be cool too. Um, So what I learned was I was an endomorph. You can look at my family and my genetics and see that there's a lot of endomorphs in my family. Um, And that was like, just kind of echoed by my ability to 
really improve at sprint training, uh, to go to CrossFit and ramp up the weights very quickly. Um, anything that required a large quantity of like fast twitch muscle fibers, I was natural at. Mm -hmm. So that being like the case, I, I started learning about slow twitch fibers and just because we're good at something that probably it doesn't mean we should do more of that thing. It actually means we should do more of the opposite, like train to our weaknesses. And so what I realized is that my whole life, every time I went for a paddle or run or anything, I was going out. Uh, I'd start out at too high of an intensity. And by blowing through my aerobic threshold, my body would release lactic acid. Lactic acid gets a bad rap. It's like, you know, it's the muscle burn, but it's not. It's actually a fuel that we use for anaerobic metabolism. So when you go out as a fast twitch athlete and you start your run, you start your paddle, you start your lift, you start whatever, when you don't warm up really slow and gradually, you, you go out there and you just instantly inject your muscles with lactate, with lactic acid, which then your fast twitch muscle fibers suck up and utilize as fuel for your entire workout. You never ever learn, or your, your body, your muscles, your slow twitch fibers never ever develop. And so I bought this lactate meter and I realized that my lactate um, levels for my aerobic threshold were down around like 140 beats per minute for heart rate. And I was like, oh wow. I instantly go to like 150, 160, and that's easy for me, mm -hmm. right? Like I would be, and to go any, to go in like the 140s and the 130s was excruciatingly slow. I mean, like embarrassing ego check slow. Like how could I, no, I, I can definitely run faster than this. And I you, feel you. <laughs> and I can, right? So I could run faster than that, but only using my fast twitch fibers and training what already is in there. Mm -hmm. And that's not what I wanted to do anymore. So I did, I had to take like two steps back, like 12 steps back to take one step forward. And because of the, the pandemic, I had all this forced time off from competition, so why not? Why not try this crazy harebrained idea that I literally need to go do eight months of training at 138, 140 beats per minute. And I did it and it sucked. <laughs> like it sucked yeah. so bad um, because you're out there and because it's not exciting and it's not high intensity, your brain's screaming at you like, oh, you should be at home, like painting the wall. You should go do work and finish those articles you have to write. Oh, you should, you know, go interact with your clients. Like there's 20 billion things that are more important to do than be paddling at like snail's pace <laughs> out on the water to be sure. Right. But I, it took a lot of discipline and it was actually mentally one of the hardest things I had ever done in my life. Um, but I started keeping like a training journal, like a really in-depth training journal about it. And I would set my intention before I went out. Like I would write, okay, today I'm going to keep the heart rate here. I'm going to do this many uh, pieces. I'm going to try to hit this speed. I'm going to do deep parasympathetic breathing to trick my heart rate into staying lower while I push the speed a little higher. Um, and then I'd get back and I'd reflect on it and I'd write about what I did that day. And for eight months, I trained to audiobooks because I couldn't stand being quiet out there. Mm -hmm. So I, I had to have at least something. Um, so I trained at that, that way. And before I knew it, I'm, 
I was hitting the paces that I was hitting before at like 178, 182 beats per minute up past my anaerobic threshold. I was holding that speed at 148. So like that my, my, my brain like exploded. I was like, Oh my God, it worked. And so I went back out, I redid the the blood lactate test and sure enough, my lactate levels, um, had like stayed low. So now I can go up to like 165, 167 at the blood lactate of two, 2.5. Whereas before that was down at around 140. So I improved my aerobic threshold by over 20 beats per minute. And somebody would go, oh, well, why does that matter? If at if at 168, I'm going the same speed almost, I'm, I am going faster. But if I were to be going the same speed, which most people would after doing that, um, it's like, well, why doesn't it matter? Why does it matter? I'm in the same heart rate, the same speed, but it's because you're burning more fat and you're rele- releasing less cortisol as well. So after the event, you don't feel like somebody mopped the floor with you. You recover better. Your health is improved. You have better functioning mitochondria. You, you're extending your lifespan back to, I guess my whole purpose for getting into all of this was, like I said, I want to live to 120 and still be paddling. And I realized that the way I was training, I'll probably have a heart attack when I'm 60. So I stopped that. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you doing the deep dive. I know I was like nodding my head the whole time because I relate very deeply and it was similar. I tore my rotator cuff uh, just after I was competing in sh- in Shanghai, crashed my motorbike. Um, and that was right before the pandemic. So while I was recovering that in the pandemic, gyms were closed up here in Canada. Like they only opened like this spring. So mm. I was like, what can I work on? And it was like that aerobic base that running, like, let me go cross country skiing to at least make it more interesting. Um, when I stay in that aerobic base, let me do nasal only when I'm mm-hmm. doing some biking. So I'm staying at that low heart rate and yeah, it is boring. It is extremely boring, especially for athletes who do not like naturally go to high intensity sports. There's a reason, like I always say CrossFit is like it's a sport for people with ADHD. You want to do every movement, everything. Right. And I'm like, okay, makes pans out for me. And so to sit on the bike and do like a very low, slow endurance type work, it just doesn't feel natural. It's really frustrating, but I think that not only, yeah, like you said, it's going to improve your performance, your recovery, um, longevity, all those good things, but it's also just a form of mental training. And it's almost like meditative. And so in, in a way it's, it's really healthy for the mind too, to not always just be distracted by, you know, the pain of a high intensity workout or whatever that is. Oh yeah. I couldn't agree more. And especially like the, like you said, the biking or even the cross country skiing, running, paddling, these repetitive motion sports where you can fall into this rhythm. Like it is very meditative, meditative. It's, it's rhythmic. And I don't know, like, I, I think that that's so good for our brains, even if you're listening to an audiobook or something like the fact that you're listening and focusing on one thing for an hour or more, or like 45 minutes or more, depending on your sport, like that's huge. Cause Instagram, like, what is it? Like our reels and our, our, like the, the posts, like they're supposed to be like 15 seconds or less or something. And mm-hmm. to, to maximizing spans or engagement short. and it's horrible. So yeah, I, I completely on the same page. 
Yeah. And I love that you said the ego check. I think that's really important for people listening. Like it is going to be an ego check because you're going to look at like, for example, for me, for my running paces. And then for me to actually like, I'll be running so slow and I'll be like, wow, like this feels painfully slow and I'll still check my heart rate. And I was like, why is my heart rate still so high? So Mm -hmm. I literally have to be at such a slow pace to stay in that. And it's like, well, are people going to look at me and think like, wow, this girl is so slow Mm -hmm. or is no one going to want to run or bike with me? because like I can't keep up they want to go do these hills and these things and I know for my own training I need to stay at this you know pace that nobody else is going to want to join me but you you do need to take that check and I think there's a lot of different things in sports but also in life where taking that check um you know just making a metaphor to other things aside from the endurance and the aerobic is going to help you if you just you know aren't afraid of what people will think you know aren't afraid of that ego hit it's going to build that foundation for longevity and whatever you want to do. Yeah. I think if you're, you're feeling tempted by like your regular training buddies to go faster and you, you haven't convinced them of like what it is we're talking about and that we know from experience, then you got to let them go and maybe don't train with them. Maybe train by yourself for a couple months. Cause they're going to be coming like knocking on your door when you start kicking their butts, like in every single event, you're like, Oh wait, what was the thing you did? Cause maybe <laughs> I, maybe I do want to try that. Like, yeah, they, they will want to try that. Um, you know, books to recommend to your friends when they haven't joined, like jumped on the bandwagon with you yet would be uh, Phil Maffetone's big book of endurance training and racing. That book really hammers these points home. And my favorite um, from Patagonia publishing was training for the uphill athlete by Scott Johnson. And that's probably, it's a more recent book. It came out right before the pandemic. Um, And it's one of the clearest, most simplest explanations of aerobic deficiency and why you should train at these intensities that I've ever found. So I highly send those to your friends and see if they'll, they'll train with you after that. But other than that, like doing your own thing, you just, you can't, you can't care what other people think ever. Um, One of the best pieces of advice I ever got when I was younger and I, I lived by it like my entire life is, you know, like when you're sitting there in the gym and you're doing something totally stupid and you have this moment where you're like, Oh my God, what is like, what do these people think of me? Are you looking around, like thinking anything about anyone else in that room? No, turns out everyone else in the room is thinking the exact same thing you're thinking. They're all thinking, oh my God, is anyone looking at me? Like, do I look stupid right now? Everyone is so busy, worried about what they look like to everyone to ever think anything about you. Now, if you're like that one random person that's sitting there like in the gym, like judging everybody, then yeah, you're, you're just weird and you have reason to <laughs> feel serious. anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> you have every reason to feel anxious, but 90% of us are too self-conscious, worried about ourselves to worry about anybody else. So you can pretty much rest assured that no matter what you're doing, no one cares. <laughs> no one's yeah. looking. Yeah. I love that. I love like that reminder of, you know, people don't, aren't thinking about you as much as you think. And even if they are, they probably haven't even tried the things that you're failing at. Um, because Definitely. like, you know, the, the, the popular quote, like you're only getting judged by people, you you never get judged by people who are doing more than you. And I really do believe that like, as 
I, I, I remember the other, I think it was during the pandemic, I was with my camera and I was filming like some videos of doing broad jumps and different things um, out at the field, just doing some field training. And I saw these girls doing a, you know, making a TikTok. And immediately I was like, wow, that's so good. Like they're, they're just kids. They're having fun. They're hanging out together. They're not getting into trouble. And I was like, not long ago, would I probably have looked and like thought, oh, like, oh, where are they filming this dance? But then as I became someone who was filming and creating videos and doing this, it was like, I stopped and released that judgment that I had in my younger years. And so as you start doing more things, you judge other people less as you're putting yourself out there more. And so if someone is judging you, anyone listening, I think, um, they're probably not doing, uh, you know, what you're doing. They're not trying the things that you're doing. Maybe they want to try and they're nervous to do it. And so that's the reason that they're, you know, leaving a comment or thinking something negatively, or like, like you said, they're not even thinking about you at all. So it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, trolls are going to be trolls and we can go on on that. Like that's a whole tangent again in itself, but they're obviously not doing much worthwhile with their time. And I think to set a goal, you know, as an athlete, whether your goal is to run one mile without stopping, or if your goal is to, to join, like be on a national team, win a gold medal, it doesn't matter how big or small your, your goal is when you set it and you're working towards your big goal every day, you know, you, you do become more compassionate towards other people. You, you don't have time to judge other people and what mm-hmm. they're doing. Um, and if you do see them doing something that you once thought silly, you're like, Oh, wait, no, in the pursuit of my goal, I could see where I might be doing something that appears silly to other people too. So I think it really does, you know, being an athlete doesn't just help you physically through the training and the aerobic base or mentally through the ability to focus on a seemingly petty uh, pace or task for a long period of time. But I mean, you could say it helps spiritually by making you a more compassionate human. So we're all just a little bit more Buddhist when we, when we're working towards a goal and doing like all our aerobic based stuff. So I love it. And I think it's so true. Like when we have a purpose and we are trying new things and doing this, it, it does, you know, it improves our empathy for other people who are doing the same thing, which is like, I truly believe if people could find what they're passionate about and like not be scared of judgment in the pursuit of doing it, then it would create a better world because we're all doing that. Right. And then we're all having the empathy for each other who are doing that rather than sitting at home and judging because we're feeling bad, like that we're not able to do that or go to our goal or have a mission or a purpose or, you know, all these different things. So I, yeah, I appreciate that we've gone down this, this rabbit hole because I think it brought up a really important conversation. I I absolutely agree. I think paddling for me originally was an existential crisis. Like I didn't think that as a human, I was capable of much more than I was capable in, in my early twenties. I was overweight. I was a couch potato. I lacked all motivation and drive to do kind of anything. And I was always searching, um, like for other people's solutions and other people's answers, like how to lose weight, how to get fit, how to be happy, how to, you know, like it, it was definitely searching the internet webs, like the internet, the, the books, like any, anything from some other human, because I was scared. I didn't have it right. Like I was, I was doing it wrong for sure. Like I need answers and we all want answers and we all want validation, but sometimes I think it's just pursuing our athleticism or like I said, setting a goal, even if it's just run a mile, like it, 
it frees us from maybe like outsourcing and looking like I think just doing and reflecting and improving it. I don't know. It it just makes life a little simpler. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and we need less to find joy and to be compassionate with others and to, uh, I don't know, connect with other people. Like, I think it all comes with that daily meditation, daily athletic practice, whatever you want to call it. I love that. And I, one thing we, we haven't really talked too much about is really that your journey through paddling and through those years, I know we've talked about a lot of the things you overcame early on. And then of course, the things that you've been working on for the last few years with the aerobic deficiency. Um, but like you said, it's been, you know, 10 plus years of working towards, uh, towards this goal. So uh, you, you talked also about the Carolina cup was recently, you're going out to, you know, us team team trials. So what does like, what does your life look like as a paddling athlete? Like, what does the, the season look like? What are the ranking systems? Like, do you have to do certain competitions to qualify for other ones? I'm so curious to know, like, what that all encompasses. Oh, man, it's, <laughs> you're going to have to beat me out. It's a shit show. So <laughs> Don't worry, snowboarding okay. in the early days was very yeah, similar. <laughs> it is. Because um, there's, like, there's different governing bodies, like, mm-hmm. that want to claim stand-up paddling. Surfing wants to claim it. Canoe wants to claim it. Everybody's mm-hmm. like, oh, this is a cool new sport. It's ours. And I'm like, it's yeah. not new. It's been around for, like, 20 years now. Um, but it there are, there's a, there's a world tour, a world professional tour that is invite only. And it's like the money tour people call it, but it is, it's nice to have. Um, cause if you get to a certain level, you can go on the, you, you receive an invite to go on the money tour and you could actually make pretty good money for traveling to train uh, to compete. Um, so you build your life around training and traveling to these races. Um, there's regional races that are very large that offer good prize purses. No one's making a a living off of the prize money in Mm stand-up paddling, even if you won like every major event of the year, which would be a lot of events because the season, um, never ends. If you wanted to chase it around the world because of the different hemispheres, you could start racing in, um, the Northern hemispheres winter down in Australia, when they're having all their summer events and you could literally chase the season around the world and never get a break. So I think prioritizing and again, that little ego check, like, yeah, I'd want to win it all. Like, and knowing how to take breaks and not overtrain um, and prioritize certain events is key. We've got the, the world money tour. You've got big events in every like major um, area of the world, like the U S and Canada, Hawaii's got a couple big events still, Australia, and there's like an entire European tour that is just like massive. And South America's got a lot of events as well. Um, The APP World Tour will hit, um, I think, Saudi Arabia and Korea this year as well. So like to to round it out where we, you know, in years past, we've done London, London. I don't, I don't know if they've ever stopped in Australia, but it's been a very kind of like Anglo-Saxon world tour. I don't know. Right. North American based. Yeah. Yeah. But now it's going global. That's, that's great. Yeah. Now it's definitely heading um, more global. Then there's the, the U S team tryouts that I'm doing this coming weekend um, is for the USA surfing. So it's, I, 
recognized okay. by ISA, the International Surfing Association, and they'll have their ISA World Championships in uh, Puerto Rico this year in October, November. Um, and then the ICF, the International Canoe Federation, has their World Championships in Poland in September this year, which I'm also planning to attend, but there is no formal tryout. It's just kind of okay. like go and play. <laughs> Interesting. I it's know. So crazy how how it all works out because some sports are, I mean, so so structured. Like snowboarding in the early days, completely unstructured. Then they became very structured because FIS, the Federation of Skiing, took over. But that was similar to how you're talking about different bodies wanting to claim it. That was a huge fight in the snowboard world because we didn't want to be managed by skiers. Um, still, I don't think want to be managed by skiers. And yeah. then there was a world snowboard tour that started up but it wasn't it wasn't quite the same as what you said like the money tour like you kind of you can qualify or get invited to certain events but it wasn't like you're on the tour now you're at all these events not like the world surf league which i think mm -hmm. would be i think it would be amazing if snowboarding adopted something similar to the world surf league um but unfortunately not quite there yet and then yeah if you want to qualify for the olympics all of a sudden you have to start doing these fist events so you have to manage you know, those events while trying to get at the events that maybe there's more prize money, more sponsorship recognition. And so it's, and then all of a sudden, yeah, it became a little bit more structured, but then you see sports, right? Like let's say basketball, soccer, football, like there's such a structure and system around how everything works. And then these action sports and niche sports and up and coming sports are really just trying to figure it out, which is, it's kind of fun though, to be part of it in the early days when it is just trying to figure it out. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I mean, in the way I've kind of structured my career, I, I abandoned, you know, real world job over a decade ago to work in a paddleboard shop so that I could uh, prioritize my training and my racing. So I mm -hmm. it, like went off to the Euro tour for like four or six weeks or something. One of those first summers because I changed my life so that I could follow this, this career path of paddler. Um, and back to like, there's not a lot of sponsor dollars if you're not at the top. And I've got news for you. When you get to the top, there's still, there's a recession. <laughs> there's not a lot of sponsor dollars there. So like you're, you are doing it out of love and passion. Um, and there has to be some other source of income. Like it, you can't, I don't, I don't know of any paddler that is supported 100% by a competitive career. Everyone has something else going on. So like I've launched the athlete agenda. I do online paddle coaching, um, you know, so, and, and it's not even, I think the first thing anybody ever asked me when I'm like, Hey, I'm a professional paddler. Everyone goes straight to how much money do you make? How much mm -hmm. money do you make? And I'm like, well, more than a WNBA player, actually. <laughs> so, um, which is cool. So I'm proud of that. But it has nothing to do with how much money I make. It would have to do with how much money I spend, right? Like, because mm -hmm. I'm not into Lambos and Rolexes um, and like what the, like the success accounts on Instagram. Um, my idea of success is napping in the lawn with my dog and growing my own food in my garden. Like that, you know, which all, I, I don't need lawn furniture to lay in the grass and chill with my dog. Um, and I don't need a ton of money for extra groceries and calories because I'm going to grow as much of it as humanly possible. Um, I don't, 
sit around on my butt. I don't actually have a TV and I don't pay for any streaming services or televisions or like any, uh, I have no like entertainment fees because I'm busy gardening, uh, growing that food, like a, like a weird farmer lady. Um, yeah, I'm either training or eating, eating or like hanging out with my dog or reading a book about physiology and getting better at being a paddler, you know? So it is, I've like created my whole life around it and all of my downtime is pretty low cost because of it. Like traveling to the competitions is the the biggest expense I have in life. Right. Yeah. It was very similar with snowboarding. It was like, let's make the budget for the season. And like, this is, you know, where everything is going. And then there was no other real expenses because my, all my time is spent <laughs> doing this, this one thing, but you brought up a, you know, a great, a great point. Like, I think, you know, people think as athletes and as professional athletes, you know, we're making all this money and it's all this glamor, but it's very limited. Like you said, there's a recession coming. And then you brought up also with the WNBA example, like, you know, especially as professional female athletes, like there's even more of a cap onto, you know, how much money is invested. I, I know the, the exact percentage that there is of sports coverage between, but I'm not sure the exact percentage that it is with sports sponsorship dollars, but I'm pretty sure it's like zero point zero. Like it is not even 1% of sponsorship dollars that go to uh, women athletes versus um, men's sports. So it's something that's definitely, we're seeing momentum shifting. Like I love to see the WNBA salary cap go up. I'd love to see more money put into your sport as well. Like, you know, all across the board. So I'm hoping there's going to be changes, but like you did say that you did mention there's a recession, things are sponsorship proof, often marketing dollars are the first things that are cut when it comes to these sports, especially when it comes to new and developing sports. But it's definitely, hopefully something I, I see change because when you think about the life of an athlete versus, um, you know, working a, a different type of job, it, your sleep, everything is, is all around performing at that, that thing. So you're working, you're not working, you know, eight hours a day, you're working 24 hours a day mm-hmm. for this small moment in time of, of success. And you don't have a window to necessarily do that professionally for your whole life. And so I would love to see more and more support for sure for athletes, you know, of all tracks, professional Olympic track, like across the board. Oh yeah. I mean, especially for, for females. So I, I'm definitely always reading and looking into more opportunities, but you should look at the, um, is it the generation for sports equality framework by UN sports? So it's an like entire United nations document on how to support gender equality, uh, through sport and in sport. And I think they have a certain budget every year for programs or entities that are supporting gender equality through sport. So initiatives are out there and they're starting. Um, but yeah, I hope one day that no matter what you choose to be in life, like athletes aren't lazy, right? It's like, I don't work any less hard. I, I work harder than a lot of people to make a lot less money than a lot of people. And thank God I don't care about money um, or else this would be horrible. But <laughs> I, you know, it would be cool if there was some sort of, yes, support or something. It's like, oh, everyone in the world can follow their passion, whatever it is. Um, I just, I do find it interesting, like unless society and consumerism deems your passion profitable and valuable, you're not going to get a, like a cut. So it would be cool if like, yeah, artists, athletes, like 
you know, more creatives and more, um, I guess, non-essential things were supported. Right, right. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, supported for sure. And I think, like you said, of being passionate about it, you do need to be passionate about it because it's not like I'm doing this for the money or I'm doing this for the fame or whatever that is. Like you're truly doing it for the love of it. And um, in many ways, like that's your form of your payment because you're not getting, you know, necessarily that financial reward that there are, let's say, in other careers, but you wouldn't have had the passionate uh, experience or the enjoyment of, you know, fulfillment of doing what you're, lo- what you love. Yeah, I know. And I caught myself, I said, non-essential, like artists and athletes are non-essential. <laughs> and I take that back. Like we're completely essential. Like we provide yeah. like, yeah. What, why are those things non-essential? Like, no, they're not. I, I changed that statement. I re- redact my, <laughs> my word choice, but yeah, I just think that, you know, passion, I, I wouldn't change what I have chosen to do for, for anything. Like I, I have time. I prioritize my sleep. I don't have an alarm. Like I wake up when my body naturally wakes up when it's rested and recovered. Um, I eat amazing organic, like fuel. It's not food. I'm not like trying to skimp on calories. My brain works really good. My body works really good because I've prioritized my health. You know, I thought I was trying to prioritize athletic performance, but in the process, I just found that by prioritizing athletic practice and athleticism, it improved my entire life. I love that. And I think that's, that's exactly why, you know, there is national governing bodies that do invest, like let's say, you know, some funding is very, very minimal as I've experienced, you know, for uh, athletes trying to make it to the Olympics and on national teams and programs. But the reason essentially for that is to promote, you know, healthy living and sports and community to the younger generation. Um, and I think that is essential. I think that is super important and to have these role models and society of people who are living their dreams and fulfilling this passion. Um, and, you know, yeah, living health, healthy, you know, sports has so many benefits from, you know, physical, mental, community, uh, social, there's just so many benefits. And one of the things that you talked about of things that you're doing along the way is this athlete agenda. I would love to know more about you know the coaching athlete agenda um that you offer to people oh well I mean my my coaching is mainly for paddlers um I just do like one-on-one individualized coaching for people looking to improve their their paddles for performance in stand-up or outrigger canoe um but the athlete agenda was something I I created because I realized that you know, you can assign people workouts all day long and they'll go in there and they'll do their workouts, but that's not, that's not where the magic happens. Like I said, like setting your intention before you go out and getting very clear about what it is you're trying to accomplish and having measurable goals, like smart goals, right. Um, and, and measuring your progress towards them, it helps with motivation. It helps identify if you're going into a bout of overtraining or undertraining, like if you're unable to hit your paces. Um, yeah, I, I just realized there's a hole in, in coaching. Like I can talk, I'm not going to talk to everybody every day, right? Like you get your, yeah. a couple of calls a month, but you should be writing down what it is you plan. Like, why is this workout happening? And I'll give notes in, you know, for my private clients, but people everywhere, like I said, you don't have to be, I don't have to be your coach for you to get an athlete agenda, which I have in my hand. Um, 
I know. As long as this video isn't posted anywhere, because I'm sweating profusely in my <laughs> office. I'm like, I feel like um, Ace Ventura in the uh, rhinoceros scene, like stuck in the, I don't know if you, you even know about that one. <laughs> I'm, I haven't watched Ace Ventura, but okay. I, I, don't worry about the sweating. I feel like, you know, everyone's in a, in a rush. This podcast is all athletes and coaches and oh, everyone's good. in a People, I'm sure half the people listening are doing a workout right now. So that's excellent. I know I'm sweating <laughs> with you. Um, but yeah, the, the athlete agenda, goes through uh, a couple chapters of goal setting for each person to identify their top three goals out of like anything and everything you could possibly want to accomplish. Um, you have to pick three. It's a quarterly planner. You can only pick three for the quarter. Um, it walks you through how to measure those goals, like gives you guidance on how to even do research to, to kind of hone in on what the goals should be. We've got to have qualitative goals, quantitative goals, doing your, your internet research, especially for paddlers. People are like, oh, I want to win this race or I want to beat Susie. I'm like, well, how fast does Susie paddle? <laughs> well, I don't know. Then, then you don't have a metric. You don't have a goal. We need a pace goal. We need a time goal. We need something that we can see you get closer to week after week. And again, without my private or personal coaching, the athlete agenda walks you through these steps. Um, and then it's got big pages for um, like the entire year to build out your, like your blocks of training, like what you should be focusing on. And also like full months, weeks, and the weekly sessions are for refocusing. And then each and every day, um, it's undated in case you miss a day because I don't want anybody to feel bad about themselves. But each day goes through um, a couple of checkoff items that you should be prioritizing as an athlete, like breath work, um, stretching and mobility, and a solid wind down ritual where you like you turn off your phone or have some sleepy time tea and do something in the evenings to prepare yourself for sleep. Um, but yeah, it, it wants you to keep track of subjective measures like mood and metrics. So I do keep track of like my weight and my heart rate variability. Um, not because I'm obsessed with my weight, but just because I want to see how it's relating to my training and my performance. Um, and then for a lot of us, like type a personalities, the mood section is one of the most important sections because if you wake up and you're feeling unmotivated and you don't feel like you should be training and you have that mindset, well, I'm just going to push through. You might be doing yourself a disservice because if you are very type A and your neurological system is saying, no, I don't want to train today. You've got to learn how to lean into that and start, I guess, training more intuitively. And that's my main goal with the athlete agenda is for people to start to see the patterns by keeping track of their, their workouts and their moods and their metrics and their notes and the things they did good and the things they did bad every single day in an effort to guide their athletic performance and guide their intuition about like how to train and what to, to do. Because following these cookie cutter plans can get you a certain distance in life. Like they can get you so far, but learning how to listen to your body and adapt your workouts on the fly is huge. Um, and furthermore, just like writing 
about your workout, that intention and that reflection every day. Like research is pretty clear that when you, your eyeballs like see your hand writing it down, it encodes it deeper into your brain. So when, for example, a paddler, we take notes about uh, the catch, the way it feels when our blade enters the water is supposed to feel really heavy and like a lot of grab, like we've got a really good connection to the water. And by writing that or saying like, oh, hey, I, I lost my catch towards the end of my interval, or I was able to maintain it, you can make some cues that make sense to you, maybe not necessarily anyone else, so that when you're in the middle of a race and your catch starts like falling apart and your technique starts breaking down because you're fatigued and you're slapping at the water, you're more likely to remember the notes that you wrote to yourself and fix your technique on the fly in the middle of a race. And you could pull off a really good performance, but you're essentially increasing your mindfulness of, of your abilities and your techniques and your strategies. It sounds like it's definitely a very empowering tool for athletes because I think journaling is one of the highest benefit, but lowest cost, you know, uh, ways that you can empower yourself as an athlete. Even if you do have a coach taking those notes, because maybe you'll, you'll change coaches or you hear a lot of collegiate athletes who all of a sudden their athletic career ends. They want to keep up their fitness. They want to do a new sport and they have no idea where to start because they've just only followed mm -hmm. what people told them rather than internalize that and have that internal, um, process of yeah, writing things down, reflecting, going through, um, not just showing up, going through the motions and tuning out afterwards. Right. And so I think it can be a very empowering tool. I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes so people can, uh, can check it out. Yeah. I, I got a cool landing page set up. It's just the athlete Uh, you can get a free sample download from that website. Oh, perfect. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'll definitely put that yeah. in there. Um, and before I let you go, we have three questions, quick questions that we ask every guest. And the first one, I mean, you kind of talked a little bit about some different habits and, you know, wind down routine and stuff when you're talking about the agenda. And this is out of all your daily habits, what is the single biggest game changer for you? Mm, that's hard. I think, um, probably like slower mornings, like journaling. Mm. You said, yeah, journaling's the number one thing that's the lowest cost and the biggest impact. I mean, I know I'm like promoting the athlete agenda, but if you don't feel like you're in the budget for the athlete agenda yet, and you don't need the, the guided prompts, just grab an old Mead notebook or something from your house and start journaling. Because I think that was the number one thing I have notebooks on notebooks on notebooks. Like I write down every thought I have, um, every time I have a cool craft idea, <laughs> like I have different journals for like different topics. I've organized mm -hmm. it, but it, I hear a lot of people talk about anxiety and I just, I don't have that because when something pops into my head, I write it down. So it's there for later if I need it, but I don't, but by writing it down, I've gotten it out of my head in my head, like I can do normal daily life things because I know I've written it down somewhere. And as long as I'm not completely unorganized, um, then I know that, that it's there for me to go grab when I need it. Right. Yeah. We had a, a recent guest on Corey camp and he talked about even voice journal using your voice memos. It's a little harder to seek through and go back, but he was talking even just for 
for mental health benefits, if you can't mm-hmm. afford to go to therapy or do these things, you know, talking to yourself through this. And I think writing things down, like you said, journaling is, it's a very similar practice where you can write those thoughts down. You can work through some of these things. And of course, yes, you know, being able to, you know, let's say have a coach or go to therapy or do these things are amazing as well. But if you're trying to look for a low cost option or in addition to those things, I think these are, you know, foundational that can really be beneficial. No, I agree. Everyone should be journaling their, their way to better mental health, better athletic performance, better everything. So love it. So next question is you're at the end of your life. You're 120 years old. You've, you've achieved your goal there. You're looking back on everything you've accomplished in, you know, one short sentence or phrase. What is that impact that you've wanted to have made? Ooh. Um, I want people to slow down, uh, and live more simply right now. Like we all buy a lot of stuff. We all spend a lot of money. Um, And I just want people to know that every hour you work, like you're exchanging your life for money. Is it worth it? Like maybe go, go try your athletic practice. I mean, I'm not saying like everyone can quit your job, right? Like Mm -hmm. we all, like I have had jobs. I have a job. I run my own business, but my husband has a job that he loves um, like with corporate America, but he, he likes what he does find something you love to do. Um, don't do it so much that you stop loving it and make sure that you prioritize your time because in theory, we're only getting to go through this once. So, you know, you, you hear about it and all those studies, like on their deathbeds, people are like, Oh, you know, I wish I spent more time with family. I wish I did this. I wish I worked less. That's what everyone said. And very few of us heed that warning um, from the elderly. And I, I've been mm-hmm. heeding it for the last 11 years. And I, I would like to spread that message more widely. Mm, yeah, a, a great reminder of, you know, life's purpose. And um, I like the the saying of you only have, this is the most amount of life what is that? Now I forgot. I forgot the actual saying, but it's like, it's, you, you won't have more life left than you do now. Like Mm -hmm. each minute is one less than you'll ever have. And so you keep, you know, looking forward to, to life as in that sense of it's not going to last forever, you know, each minute that you're spent. And of course there's going to be times you just want to chill and watch Netflix or do whatever. And that might, that's not necessarily wasted, but it's just being mindful and, you know, thinking through of what you want to do. So I really appreciate your, your reminder there mindfulness like I definitely I lay on my couch a lot like I kick my feet <laughs> up relax sometimes I work really hard and sometimes I f off all day and but it's a balance right and it again it's learning to listen to your body it's not you know trying to drown out you know I don't know anxiety or, or confusion or boredom or sadness it's, it's sitting and being present with your feelings and your thoughts and just mm-hmm. being very aware and trying to be mindful and aware throughout life. I think it lengthens it. Hmm. Yeah. Important. Hopefully it works for you and hopefully you get to 120 and then you'll be reflecting back on that impact. I hope Um, so. (laughs) Well, the last question is what does the term all in mean to you? Hmm. Yeah. One, no regrets. 100% all in Uh, mistakes, successes, failures, um, 
all of it all in whether whether you make it or not awesome so. i love it i really appreciate your time of coming on here where can people find you i'm definitely going to put the link to the athlete agenda but is instagram the best place to for people to follow all, all that you get up to yeah uh instagram's phenomenal um at april zilg i do weekly sep tip tuesdays um and some other fun stuff i've got the athlete agenda which just recently launched it's hot off the presses um that's athlete-agenda.com or to get your free sample it's the athleteagenda.com um there's an instagram for that too it's just at the athlete agenda but if you want to know more about me my paddle coaching or anything like that not related to the athlete agenda um i'm just aprilzilg.com Perfect. Well, thank you again for coming on. I appreciate you sharing your training tips, your lessons, the hardships that you went through, um, you know, the real behind the scenes of doing what you're, what you're doing. Um, I wish you all the best next week. I think that's so exciting that you're, well, I guess you're heading off tomorrow actually. So not yeah. even Dude. next week. Um, yeah, so <laughs> hopefully people can keep track of your results by the time this podcast comes out, they'll probably have a cool result hopefully to, uh, to associate with. And again, thank you so much for coming on. No, it was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And I, yeah, I'm super stoked. It was great to hear from you as well. You had some amazing insights. It was a great chat. If you like the podcast, the best way to support it is to leave a review and share it with a friend. Truly leaving a written review, letting us know what you liked and want more of and sharing the podcast so more people can benefit is the best gift you could possibly give us. Thanks again for listening. I'm so grateful for your support and I'll catch you on the next one.